We do truly need God every hour, and the way that we avail ourselves uh, of God's power and God's grace is uh, through trust. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue our study of the uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, I hope you picked up a a copy of the uh, sermon notes as we came in. If you did, uh, you'll notice that first half, the blanks are already filled in. That's because I already gave that message. Uh, So today we'll be uh, dealing with the flip side of your sermon notes. Uh, But first, let's just uh, briefly uh, review that first side. In our last message on Hebrews, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we saw how Jesus was a faithful son over God's household, God's household being a reference to God's people. And in that message, as you see there in your notes, we examined three key truths. And the first one was, Jesus, His faithfulness is to be the focus of my life. Our faith is not strengthened so much by striving for more faith, but by resting in the faithful one, resting in Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest. Now, the second truth was the very heart of the last message. Jesus' faithfulness makes Him worthy of my trust more than any other person. The key thought being, if I cannot trust Jesus, the very Son of God, who motivated by love for me, left the glories of heaven, came to this sin-cursed world, died on the cross for the penalty of my sin, rose again to be my merciful and faithful high priest, then there's nothing more that God can do to secure my trust. What better hands to entrust your life into than the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ? Jesus, who loved you with a love that Death could not kill. The grave could not bury. A love that rose again to live with you forever. And can you think of any other person who has a perfect track record of faithfulness like Jesus who would be more worthy of your trust? And then the third truth we looked at in the last message was Jesus' faithfulness to God proved He was God's Son. And in similar fashion, my faithfulness to Jesus proves that I am God's child. In other words, continuance in the faith proves the authenticity of my faith. Now, as we saw in the last message, this is not saying that believers do not fail. It's not saying that believers do not fall into sin. It's not saying that believers do not struggle with fear or adversity. But when we do... We have a merciful and faithful high priest to turn to. When the roof caves in on our lives, He is the one to turn to for forgiveness. Jesus is the one to turn to for grace to persevere. He's the one to turn to for guidance, for provision, whatever the need is. And when you turn to Him, that act of trust validates your faith. Jesus glories in taking the rubble of our lives and rebuilding it into a home worthy of His presence. So, in chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 6, the writer's focus is on how Jesus was faithful. Then beginning in verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 14, he turns the focus to my response to Jesus. Will I be faithful? Jesus was faithful. Okay, now will I be faithful? And specifically, will I be faithful to trust Jesus no matter what challenge or adversity I face in life? Now, today, uh, we only have time uh, to lay the foundation uh, for this passage by briefly looking at the Old Testament illustration the writer uses to drive home not only the importance of trusting God, but the consequences of failing to do so. So look in your notes, and again, we're on uh, the side where it says, will I be faithful? And look at the introduction, the introduction. We come now to the second of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Let me just pause right there. Because some of you may have missed the introduction when we gave the very first message when we gave the overview. One of the highlights of the book of Hebrews is that there are these five warnings throughout the book, and they intensify as you go through the book. And the, all the warnings pertain to our response to the Word of God, the importance of listening to God and responding to God, obeying God. And today we come to the second of those five warnings. The first warning was not to neglect God's Word, which leads to drifting from God. And we looked at that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This second warning is not to develop a hard heart of unbelief by failing to trust God. The second warning is not to develop a hard heart of unbelief by failing to trust God. Now, with that, let's read uh, at least, uh, let's begin at uh, chapter, uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, and uh, this morning we'll read through the end of chapter 3. So, I hope you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 3, and I'll begin reading at verse 7 all the way through to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren lest there should be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned 
and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, it is very, I believe, important to see why the language in this warning is so stern, uh, so severe. We need to realize trust is a choice that you make, right? It's a choice that you make to place your confidence in someone that you believe is reliable. When we refuse to trust God, we are calling into question the very integrity of God. You see, we need to see this from God's perspective. Again, choice, uh, trust is a choice that I make to place my confidence in someone I believe is reliable. So from God's perspective, if I fail to trust Him, then I'm calling into question His integrity. See, we are e- when we fail to trust God, we're either saying one of two things. We're either saying, God, I simply don't believe what you've said in your Word. Or we're saying, you know, God, I know you mean very well by what you've said. I just don't believe you have the power to pull it off. And we're saying one of those two things when we fail to trust God. But either way, our failure to trust Him maligns and impugns the very character of God. It is also important to see how our failure to trust God grieves, pains, wounds the very heart of God. Like any father, there is nothing that God values more than the trust of His child. I understand this. You fathers understand. I'm a father of ten children, and I can honestly say there would be nothing that would devastate me more than for one of my children to come to me, look into my face, and say, Dad, you know, I just don't believe I can trust you anymore. And that's what we're saying to God when we fail to trust Him in life's circumstances. And it hurts Him. It wounds Him. It pains Him, especially because what? He's done nothing to cause us to question His trust. He's done, on the other hand, everything to encourage us to put our trust in Him. And also realize, if you fail to trust God, you're going to miss out on many blessings God intended you to experience. Now, look at the historical background. Look at the historical background there in your notes. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, those first verses we read, the writer quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 and 11, describing Israel's failure to trust God following the Exodus, which caused God to deny them entrance into the promised land and brought His chastening in the wilderness wanderings. Now, again, I'm so limited with my time, but most of you are familiar with this story, how God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt. And then His intention was to what? Take them into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, uh, that He was giving them as an inheritance. And He promised that He would be with them and give them the ability to conquer the enemies in the land that they might be able to gain possession 
of it. And you remember they came to Kadesh Barnea, which was right on the edge of the promised land. And you remember Moses sent out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes. And after 40 days of spying the land, they returned. And they said, in unison, it is everything God said it was and and more than than what you could imagine. I mean, it truly is a land that is bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. Just incredible. But then 10 of the spies said, but... There's mighty enemies in there, impenetrable fortresses in Canaan. And matter of fact, many of them are giants, and we are like grasshoppers in their sight, and they're going to squash us. And those ten spies said, and they're too strong for us. We will not be able to possess, conquer the land. But do you remember there were two, Joshua and Caleb, said, hold it, wait a minute. Yes, that is true. There are formidable enemies in the land. But God has told us to go. And God has promised that he will be with us. And God has promised us victory over our enemies. And they appeal to the people, don't rebel. Don't shrink back in fear and anxiety and worry. We need to press forward. We need to trust God. And you remember how the people responded? They started to take a vote to obtain new leadership. Uh, to reject Moses and Aaron. And then they came close to stoning Joshua and Caleb. They were so upset with them. In other words, when they came to Kadesh Barnea, when they came to that crisis of faith, when they came to crunch time, they failed to trust God. Now, take your Bibles, and you need to see what the consequence of their unbelief and failure to trust God would. Look at Numbers 14, chapter 14, Numbers, book of Numbers, chapter 14. And we're just going to have to read some of these portions. I won't have much time to make much commentary, but it sort of speaks for itself. And again, all I'm driving home at this point, all I'm wanting you to see is the consequence of their failure to trust God. Numbers 14, let me begin reading at verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? And why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? To slavery? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes 
And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting to all the sons of Israel. Now just pause right there. Now what takes place, you have this encounter that Moses has with God. God is angry. God says, if you read that, we just don't have time, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing. He said, this people have spurned me. I've loved this people. I've redeemed this people. I've shown this people miracles, sign after sign, yet they refuse to trust me. They spurn me. They malign me. They impugn my character like we just talked about. And he says, Moses, I'm just going to destroy them, and I'm going to give you another nation that would be more worthy. And Moses falls on the ground, and he begins to intercede for the people. He said, God, wait a minute. If you destroy this people, your enemies are going to say, That you had the ability to bring them out of Egypt, but you didn't have the ability to bring them into the promised land. And you gave us an oath. And then he pleaded on God's loving kindness. He pleaded on God's mercy. And then notice God's response in verse 20. Verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. In other words, I've forgiven them. But... Indeed, as I live. See, there are consequences when you fail to trust God, when you spurn Him, when you malign and impugn His character. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely, all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. Let me just pause right there. I think that's important to see. What's happening here is not just because of the singular event at Kadesh Barnea. There had been a long pattern of unbelief, a long pattern of mistrust. And I wish I had time. You can actually go back to the book of Exodus and work through up to this point, and you can see all ten of the episodes that are being referred to here, where the people refused to trust, where they whined, where they complained, they grumbled, they became angry. So he says, they put me to test these ten times and not listen to my voice. Verse 23, shall by no means will they see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. So important to see in this passage the way God views mistrust, the way it angers him, the way it grieves him, and how it cuts us off from all that God is offering to us. And in verse 24, but my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now go down to verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? From the people's perspective, who were they grumbling and complaining against? 
their leadership, Moses and Aaron. But God says, hey, they're not grumbling towards you. They're actually spurning me. I'm the one they're complaining to. I'm the one they're disappointed in. I'm the one they're failing to trust. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness according to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days. For every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do uh, to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they shall die. That's a pretty serious passage, isn't it? And notice the writer of Hebrew is using this as an illustration to confront these Hebrew Christians. Now, let's go back to what they're dealing with. They're facing what? And we've seen this throughout this whole study. They're, they're facing Roman persecution. They're struggling with the cost of following Jesus. They're, they're seeing their old Judaism as something very inviting to retreat back to, to abandon Christ, retreat back because it's going to be a lot safer. I mean, they could possibly be tortured. They could be imprisoned. They could lose their lives. So they're at a Kadesh Barnea, a very significant Kadesh Barnea for them. Will they trust God even in the face of persecution, looking to His grace, looking to His strength, looking to his protection, or will they retreat in unbelief like they did here at Kadesh Barnea? And then there's the message for us today. We face adversity. We face challenges. Every day we're making a choice to trust God or not to trust God. Every day we're saying, yes, I'm going to place my confidence in God because I believe he's reliable and he is worthy of my trust. And what better hands could I place my life into into than the nail-pierced hands of Jesus? Or what? We turn from Him. And we turn turn from the cross. We turn from everything that we know of God. And we spurn Him. And we malign and impugn Him by failing to trust. And in falling into that terrible rut of unbelief and unrest that leads to anger and grumbling. All those different things. Now, go back to your sermon notes and look at what the key terms represent to believers today. What the key terms represent to believers today. The promised land represents our spiritual inheritance in Christ. Our spiritual inheritance in Christ. 
doesn't represent heaven. No, because in the promised land, there were, what, battles to be fought. The promised land was something God had given them as an inheritance, but they were going to have to appropriate that through what? Through faith. They were going to have to appropriate God's power, God's grace, to possess what He had given them. So, for us today, the promised land is our spiritual inheritance in Christ. Jesus says, I've blessed you with every blessing in the Spirit. He says, you lack nothing that you need to face any challenge, any adversity you will ever encounter in life. But it doesn't automatically happen. He requires us to make a choice to put our trust in Him. And it's that trust that enables us to avail ourselves of God's power and grace. And again, as we've seen, when we fail to do so, we're only hurting ourselves. Yes, we're maligning and impugning the character of God, but we're missing the wonderful blessings that God always intended us to experience when we fail to trust Him. Look at wilderness wanderings. Now, what does that represent to us today? It represents the experience of believers. These were redeemed individuals. And even... As we, even at Kadesh Barnea, God said, I've pardoned them, I've forgiven them, but there's going to be consequences to their failure to trust me. So for us, it represents the experiences of believers who fail to claim their spiritual inheritance in Christ due to doubting God's Word, which results in restless unbelief. That's what the wilderness experience is for a believer. A believer that just goes through life Seeing God's works, as it says here, but never knowing God's ways, never knowing intimacy with God, always complaining, always grumbling, always murmuring because of their failure to trust God's grace, the failure to surrender their lives to God and to trust Him to arrange their lives in the way that He deems best, trusting that He's too good to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, but too infinite to explain Himself to our finite minds. And so there are many times we have to trust his heart, right? Even when we cannot trust or trace his hand. When we cannot tra- and then look at the word rest. What does rest represent to us? Now, this, is a, this definition here is, a, is an oversimplification. And, and we'll see that uh, this is a very significant term, especially in chapter 4. But for today, we, it, and, and this, this sort of clarifies it, it represents the peace and the rest that comes from submitting to God's Word and placing our trust in God. The greater our trust, the greater our rest. Now, don't miss that simple point. It is so simple, but it's so powerful. Trust always results in rest. And the greater my trust in God, the greater my rest. As a matter of fact, this should help us when I'm not resting, when I'm not at peace, that should be a telltale sign in my life. Wait a minute. There needs to be a time of examination right now. I need to get alone with God. I need to bear my heart to God. I need to get to that place of full surrender where I can entrust my life to God. I can entrust my life to God in this present circumstance, and I can know His rest, believing that this hasn't caught Him by surprise. I might panic, but He provides. He already has the answer. He already has the solution. And if I trust Him, He's going to reveal it to me. But if I fail to trust Him, what happens? I cut myself off from that provision. 
from those resources. Now, let me raise uh, the question very, very quickly. Why did the, and th- this is not in your notes, why, why did the writer choose Psalm 95 verses 7 and 11, this reference to Israel's failure uh, at Kadesh Barnea? And I think there are four reasons. Let me just mention very quickly. First, uh, and you'll find this very interesting, this passage was very, very familiar to all these Hebrew Christians. You know why? The opening phrase, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do you know that was proclaimed every Sabbath evening when the Jewish people would gather at the synagogue? Every Saturday evening when they gathered for worship, the first thing they heard week after week, year after year, decade after decade, today, if you hear His heart, do not harden your heart. So they were very familiar with this. This would have perked up their ears immediately. Second, the passage is a what? A sober reminder of the unfaithfulness of God's people. God's people had experienced God's redemption and power in their exodus from Egypt, but they refused to trust God to enter the promised land. And the terrible lesson here in Israel's history is that it is possible, it is very possible for those who are redeemed to begin well but end poorly and to miss out on much that God had planned for them. The third reason I think he uses his passage is passage stresses the importance of listening to the voice of God. And as we've already seen, this is one of the key themes that runs from the beginning of the book of Hebrews all the way to the end of the book of Hebrews. God has spoken through His Son. Listen to Him and obey. Don't refuse Him who speaks. Respond to Him. See, Psalm 95, it emphasizes what? The urgency of trusting God's Word, what? Right now, without delay. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. And then the last reason, I believe, he used this passage, it underscores, as we've already seen, the severe and tragic consequences of unbelief and disobedience. The Psalm 95 quote concludes with God's sober pronouncement, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There were 600,000 men, plus women and children, about one and a half million all together who came out of Egypt. But of that number, how many got to the promised land? Only two, who were over the age of 20, as the rest died in the wilderness, never to experience the rest God had planned for them, the rest God intended them to enjoy. In the same way, our failure to trust God can lead into a wilderness of restlessness. Now, look at the evidences as we sort of bring this to a close. The evidence is that I'm not trusting and resting in God. Again, I wish I had more time to expand on this. But what I've done right here, remember it said, he talked about the 10 occasions where they had spurned him and it was climax at Kadesh Barbarian. I went back this past week and I reviewed every one of those occasions where they failed to trust God. And then I just, I've just listed the fruit of their mistrust. 
In other words, the evidences that were there that demonstrated their mistrust. And I share this with you in, 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 a, in a way to help you examine your own life. Uh, to be able to, to say, wait a minute, I don't want to go down this same path. I need, I need to stop this thing right now and turn back to God. But here's what you see. Number one, you see anger. And why do, you, why do you see anger? You see anger because they've, they've never given up their rights. They've never fully released their life to God. So they're always trying to control that which is uncontrollable, and you can't do it. And so they get angry, and they get frustrated. And as they get angry, and they frustrate. You see continual complaining. They're complaining about their food. They're complaining about the provision. They're complaining about their living condition. They're complaining about their leadership. They're complaining, 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 murmuring, grumbling just continually. And then the third thing, self-pity. It's always, woe is me. And it's amazing. They even invite God to their pity party. Oh, God, look at poor us. Why would you have done this to us? And the whole time God's saying that, what are you talking about? I love you. I love you. I redeemed you. I possessed you for myself. I developed this wonderful plan for you to rest in the promised land. My only desire is to give you what is best. I'm on your side, not against you. You're the ones that have refused to trust me, that have refused to appropriate what I've provided for you, and then worry. They're always worrying. And what does worry do? Well, you know, we talked about this in the uh, spring revival this past week, in the message I shared. I shared an entire message on worry. And we said that word worry, merimneo in the Greek text, means to divide, to tear away. And what happens when you worry? See, you're so, you're so focused on your circumstances, you get torn away from God as a present reality. And when you begin focusing on your circumstances, what happens? Your problems, your adversity, your challenge get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and God gets smaller, 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 smaller. And then you just become overwhelmed. You become overcome by life circumstances. Now you're mastered by life circumstances rather than being mastered by Jesus Christ and His Word. And then the last one, just rebellion. And we've seen that in Numbers 14. I mean, wanting to get new leadership, go back to slavery in Egypt? What are they thinking? They're stupid. They're crazy. Wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb? Now, lessons for today. And I'm just going to have to, we'll, we'll pick up here in the next message. But uh, let me just at least touch on these. So we, so we end on a positive note. Lesson for, number one, trials come to soften my heart towards God, not harden my heart towards God. Such an important truth. Trials come. God allows trials. He allows tests to come to soften my heart towards Him, not harden my heart. In other words, when, when trials come, when tests come, when adversity, when difficult, God wants me to turn to Him in trust, not to turn away from Him in resentment. And you need to evaluate your life right now. Where are you in the midst of your life's adversities and circumstances? Have those tests, have those trials caused you to, caused you to run to God so that you're honest about your fears, you're honest about your anxiety, you're honest about your, 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 your questions, you're honest with God about your struggle, and you just pour your heart out to Him, to that merciful and faithful high priest. Because I guarantee if you do, He'll meet you at that place. And he'll bring comfort. He'll bring strength. He'll bring grace. 
to put your trust in Him. Number two, rest means I accept what God wants, not what I want. Man, what a simple but powerful truth. Rest presupposes that I accept what God wants for my life, not what I want. I mean, we're back to that place. Can you honestly say that you've gotten on your knees before God and you say, God, I give you the freedom, I give you total freedom to arrange the affairs of my life to arrange my circumstances, my family, my relationship. I give you that freedom to, in the way that you deem best. I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust that you know better than me. I'm going to trust that you are committed to my good, to my benefit, to your greater glory. And so I'm acknowledging I'm here not to use you to accomplish my dreams. No, Lord, I'm here to submit to your authority. I'm here to serve your agenda. I'm here to seek your approval. What saith my Lord to his servant? And then third, and this is a glorious truth right here, when resting accompanies testing, in other words, when you put your trust in God and you know that rest, divine surprises replace human strivings. Divine surprises replace human striving. And let me tell you what I mean by that, and we'll close. You need to understand and mark this down on the authority of God's Word. I guarantee you, in your life, in this church, whatever form, anytime God is about to display His glory, anytime God is about to display His glory, He is going to ask of you a step of obedience. to see if you will trust Him. And many times that step of obedience, that act of trust, will be very emotionally difficult for you. Often it will seem ridiculous what God is asking in His Word, what He's laid upon your heart. But anytime God is about to display His glory, He is going to require of you a step of obedience, a step of trust. It's through trust that we avail ourselves of the person and the power of God. That's what connects us. That's what lights us up to be a light for Jesus, is putting our trust in Him. And just think of the Bible. When you trust God, a little shepherd boy named David slays a giant. When you trust God, like Joshua and the children of Israel later, in King, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And you can just go walk through biblical history. And you can see when you trust God, wonderful, amazing surprises occur. Now, all the times, it's not that miraculous conclusion. It may be just God giving grace, using your adversity as a platform to show Jesus to others, as we've seen in the Williams family, for example. He doesn't always remove the adversity. Sometimes he uses the adversity as a platform, but it all comes back to what? Okay, God has allowed this not to harden me, but to soften me. Rest comes by accepting what God wants, not what I want. And if God is, if this is your way to use me to demonstrate your glory, I relinquish my rights. I give you my life and I embrace it as my cross, knowing that I'll know the power of the resurrection and you'll use me to put Christ on display. But I guarantee if you trust him, you'll find, because he, he always is, worthy of your trust. Amen. Father.
help us to see the importance of trust. Help us also to see the consequences of failing to trust you. Open our eyes to the majesty, to the beauty, the glory, the power of Jesus Christ, that we would truly see he is worthy of our trust more than any other person. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.